It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 329 for the 10th of February, 2013. This week, I've identified 10 utilities, more or less, that just about everybody needs. How well are tablets catching on? In short circuits, Apple's iPad was a hit for the holiday season, a Dell stockholder tries to block the leveraged buyout, an avalanche of fraudulent messages buried my computer this week, and a quick explanation of what happened to the podcast audio a couple of weeks ago. Utility applications are typically single-purpose programs designed to perform one task that the operating system doesn't do, or doesn't do very well. Whenever I set up a new computer, I install some utilities right away because I know I'll need them. In some cases, these are specific applications, and in others, there are choices to be made within a given type of application. My list doesn't include antivirus programs, backup programs, or other similar applications, because these are no longer optional. If you operate a computer without protection and without backup, you will regret that decision someday. So I assume that you have those in place. But sometimes you might want the computer to do something it doesn't do. The good news is that somebody else has probably already thought of that and wished that their computer did whatever it was that you wish your computer does, and they've probably created a utility to perform that very task. In many cases, the utilities are offered for free, other times they're free but donations are requested, and still others are distributed as shareware that you need to pay for after trying them for 15 or 30 days. So let's get started. Number one, a Windows Explorer replacement. The Windows Explorer really isn't very good, and it never has been. Copying files from one directory to another is harder than it should be because the Windows Explorer has only a single column of files. Starting with Windows 7, it's possible to open two instances of Explorer and make each fill half the screen, but at best, that's a workaround. Nexus File and QDIR, that's Q-DIR, both provide at least two simultaneous directories. QDIR can display up to four. So copying or moving files is easy. I thought I'd found the perfect replacement last year with Nexus File, but a recent accidental discovery led me to QDIR. The first thing you'll see when you open Nexus File is that there's a lot of information there. You'll find icons in the upper left corner to common locations, such as the desktop, documents, pictures, music, videos, and favorites. These will take you to the Windows defaults unless you change them, and you can change them. Pictures, in my case, goes to Digital Cameras. That's a directory on Drive D. And Music takes me to my iTunes directory on Drive F. Another key feature is the list of all drives on the system and an indication of how much space remains on each drive. This is visible regardless of which drives or directories you've selected in either the right or left panel. The left and right panels make it easy to drag and drop files from one location to another. The inability to do this is, as I mentioned, one of the major shortcomings of the Windows Explorer. 
Selecting a different disk drive for either right or left panel is as easy as clicking on the icon in the upper left corner of each panel and then selecting the drive from the drop-down list. From there, you can easily drill down into any directory. Acuter has been around for a while, since 2006, and somehow I managed to avoid finding it until 2013. Well, better late than never, I guess. Cuter comes with what appears to be a well-earned caution. Warning, it says, once cuter, always cuter. And indeed, that seems to be the case. I thought Nexus File had a lot of options, but cuter goes far beyond that. For example, you can set up many favorites. I have one favorite that shows four directories that I often use together. Another favorite shows website development directories from drive D on the left and website production directories from drive E on the right. You can choose the colors that Cuter uses for different kinds of files. The list goes on and on. And this is a free program, although the author does offer an option to make a donation. Number two, keeping time. You can display the current time in the Windows notification area or tray. It shows only hours and minutes unless you expand the taskbar to be more than a single layer deep. When you have a taller taskbar, Windows will also display the name of the day and the date, but still no seconds. Well, I like a display with seconds. The free DS clock, which Duality software uses to promote its other applications, displays time and date information the way I want it, or the way you might want it. I prefer the 24-hour format, and in addition to local time, I'd like to keep an eye on Greenwich Mean Time, or depending on your frame of reference, Zulu or UTC. They're all essentially the same thing. That's the time zone that's used as a reference for all other time zones. Because I have a second monitor, I stick the DS clock readout in the upper left corner of the second monitor. It's easy to see there, but out of the way. You can choose whether the display is transparent or enclosed in an opaque box, the color of the display, and the size and typeface used. DS clock can automatically synchronize with a time service such as the National Institute of Technology and Standards. This functionality is also built into more recent versions of Windows, so you'll probably want to use just one or the other. There's also a sound option. DS clock can play a rendition of Westminster Chimes every quarter hour. This is one of the first things I turn off. In addition to knowing what time it is, some of us find it helpful to know how long we have to complete something. Here's an idea. When a boring or unpleasant task is at hand, give yourself a set period of time during which you'll concentrate entirely on that specific task. Set a timer so that you'll know how much time remains. This is a psychological trick, but it works. When you're working against the clock, most people concentrate on getting the job done. The period has to be relatively short, though, 15 to 30 minutes. You won't finish your tax return in 30 minutes or less, but concentrating on the task for 30 minutes will move things along much further than if you just tinker with the process for an hour or two. You could buy a kitchen timer to accomplish this or use a free utility such as Focus Booster or Countdown Timer. Let's start with Countdown Timer. There's not much to this little application, and that's neither a good thing or a bad thing. After all, how many bells and whistles does a timer need? Set it to sound an alarm after any number of minutes and click the start button and you're done. 
You can specify the type of alarm. You can minimize it to the tray. You can change various other settings. If you don't like any of the default alarm sounds, you can add your own. Or if you don't want any sounds at all, maybe you're using it in an office, specify a pop-up message instead. Focus Booster is a bit more formal, and the default uses what's called the Pomodoro method that sets 25-minute work segments with 5-minute breaks. The result is that you're encouraged to take a brief break twice an hour, and supporters say this improves both alertness and focus. During the work part of the session, you'll see a progress bar that begins as green transitions to yellow and becomes red near the end of the period. When you're supposed to start your break, Focus Booster sounds an alarm and begins the break countdown. At the end of the break, another work session begins. I used this application at the office when I needed to remember to get up and walk around every now and then to exercise a stiff and painful knee. After using it for that, I've started using it as a reminder not to sit in place for hours at a time. This is one you might want to try. Uh, and by the way, Pomodoro, that's Italian for tomato. So why is this technique called tomato? Well, apparently the guy who invented the method once owned a kitchen timer that looked a lot like a tomato. Item number three, portable connection protection. You know you shouldn't use one of those public Wi-Fi spots in a coffee shop or airport for connections to important sites. But what can you do? Cross your fingers and hope for the best? There is a better way. The dangers are obvious. Crooks sitting nearby might be watching everything you send or receive. They might even insert themselves between you and the Wi-Fi hotspot so they can grab usernames and passwords. Instead of just hoping for the best, install the free hotspot shield, making sure that you decline any additional toolbars that are offered. And once you've done that, all communications from your computer will be encrypted. The free version is all that a casual user of public Wi-Fi hotspots would need. It does serve a certain amount of advertising, though. So if you spend a lot of your time on the road, or you're just bugged by ads, you might want to pay 30 bucks. For the paid version. Number four, a boot improver. It's called Startup Delayer. At boot time, Windows starts a lot of processes and services, and some of the applications you've installed might also start additional processes that run in the tray or simply exist quietly in the background. Well, each of these takes a certain amount of time to start, and when Windows tries to start them all simultaneously, there's a considerable amount of contention between the various processes, and as a result, the entire boot process becomes very slow and disc-bound. Because of the uncommonly large number of applications that I prefer to have running, the computer could be all but unusable for 15 minutes or more. Two options exist for correcting this problem. Add yet another startup process called Startup Delayer, or install a solid-state disk drive as the computer's boot device. Installing an SSD will speed the process so much that startup delayer probably won't be necessary. I expected faster boot times when I installed one, but I expected I would still need startup delayer. That has proved not to be the case. The older and slower Office computer has a standard disk drive, a lot less memory, and it's a 32-bit system instead of a 64-bit system, so startup delayer is still a requirement there. For number five, I would consider adding a text editor. 
for example, UltraEdit or Notepad++. If you write code of any sort, you need a text editor. Applications such as Adobe Dreamweaver include a code view, but you might want more features than code view offers. You might also maybe want the ability to have multiple documents open simultaneously, or perhaps the ability to create your own macros or scripts that work within the text editor. Or maybe you just want to use the same application to work with text, regardless of what you're working on or what program you have open. UltraEdit and UltraEdit Studio, which includes some additional power user features, are available from IDM Computing. Neither is free. Both are available as shareware, though, and both may be installed on all the computers you own, as long as only one instance is running at any given time. I have to put all in quotation marks because the default limit is two computers, and IDM does begin to push back a bit if you ask for permission to install on more than about five. Still, that's enough for most people. Notepad++ is a free alternative to UltraEdit or UltraEdit Studio, and it offers many of the same powerful features that IDM does with its applications. JEdit is another good choice, and it's free. Because JEdit is written in Java, it runs equally well on Windows, Apple, Linux, or Unix computers. For number six, it is decompression time. Compressed files are everywhere, and although later versions of Windows can treat zip files much like a directory, I still think it's better to have a zip utility, and the one I would pick is 7-Zip. As the name implies, 7-Zip has its own proprietary format called 7-Z, which offers tighter compression and better security than standard zip files. But because you can't count on most people to have 7-Zip, sticking with the standard zip format is wise when you create compressed files for other people. 7-Zip can handle compressed files including docx, and yes, that is the Microsoft Word file format. They're just really zip archives. The utility can create and extract files from 7-Z, XZ, BZIP to GZIP, TARZIP, and WIM archives. And it can also be used to extract files from a huge list of other archive-type files. You'll find the whole list on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Although compression ratios depend on the type of data being compressed, 7-Zip compresses to 7-Z format about 30-70% to 70 better than the standard zip format. But even if you stick with the standard zip format, 7-Zip will still give you slightly better compression, maybe 2-10%. to 10%. Item number 7, getting graphic. Uh, JR Ruler and IrfanView are fast stone. All right, an on-screen ruler is admittedly something that not too many people need, but just about everyone needs an image viewer. The image viewer that's included with Windows isn't very exciting. Thumbs Plus that I described last week is flexible and powerful, but it might be too much for somebody who needs only to click on an occasional image and have it appear on the screen. For that, either IrfanView or Fast Stone would be an excellent choice, and actually both of them do a lot more than just that. IrfanView is more than just a viewer. It has support for scanners using Twain. It can create slideshows. It can take screenshots. It'll even play music and video files. And it's free. IrfanView can resize, convert formats, crop and flip images. Although it's not Photoshop, there are functions to correct color, remove red eye, sharpen images, and even create negatives. IrfanView can open in what I consider to be single-view mode, in which you select an image to view it, and in thumbnails view mode, in which you see a screen of smaller images and select one to open in IrfanView. 
If you choose Earthenview, be sure to download both the installation file and the plugins installation file. FastStone is also more than just a viewer. As with Earthenview, it includes a variety of basic editing features. Unlike Earthenview, it always starts in thumbnail view mode. The application provides for rotating, resizing, and adding text to images. You can adjust colors and add some special effects filters. And of course, there's a slideshow option. Now, about that ruler. If you're a website designer, an on-screen ruler is nearly indispensable. Otherwise, unless you're curious about the dimensions of objects on a website, it's probably of little interest to you. But if you need one, JR Ruler is a good choice. For number eight, how to be where you're not with LogMeIn. LogMeIn provides a variety of applications that make it possible to provide support as well as to log into your own computer from a remote location. And there's even a free version. The free version of LogMeIn is all that most people will need, but there is a pro version, $200 a year for up to five computers, and it provides features that frequent users might want. Let's say you intended to bring a file home from the office so that you could work on it over the weekend. You get up on Saturday morning, you turn on the computer, and you realize you didn't bring the file home. What now? Drive back to the office? Not if your company allows the use of LogMeIn, and not all companies do, by the way. But if yours does, all you need to do is connect to the LogMeIn website, log on, select your office computer, and log on to it. Depending on the browser you're using, LogMeIn may need to install a plugin that serves to operate the emulator that displays your office computer's screen on your home PC. LogMeIn includes 256-bit SSL encryption and requires two passwords, one when you log on to the LogMeIn site, the other when you log on to your remote PC. What's missing in the free version, you might be wondering? Well, the ability to transfer files, for one. So with my little scenario that I've set up, how does that work to get your file? Well, while you're logged on to the Office PC, you could just email the file to yourself, if it's small enough, or if you have an FTP client like FileZilla, and you'll hear more about that in a moment, just place the file on your company's external FTP server. Number nine, close stuck files with Unlocker. Ever see a message when you're trying to delete a file that says, cannot delete file, access is denied, or file is in use by another process? All you want to do is delete a file that you no longer need, but you can't. So you try closing every application, and still you can't delete the file. So finally you reboot the computer, then you can delete the file. It really doesn't have to be that way. Sometimes a file lock remains even after an application has released the file. In other cases, there might be a legitimate need to delete a file, even though it's still in use by an application. When you have Unlocker running, you can delete stuck files without having to restart the computer. This is a really handy little free utility. And for number 10, you can move files from here to there or there to here with FileZilla. File Transfer Protocol, or FTP, is one of the most underused protocols on the Internet. It's true that any modern web browser can handle FTP for file downloads, but FileZilla is handy if you need to make a large file available to somebody else for pickup. 
For example, I needed to provide an audio file for a friend in Cleveland this week. The audio file was relatively short, but it had been recorded for maximum fidelity, so it was also nearly 30 megabytes. My friend uses AOL, and I knew I couldn't send her a file that large. Even compressed, it would have been a large file. So, I used FTP to create a directory on my website, uploaded the file with FileZilla, and sent her a link that she could use with her browser to download it. Yes, I could have used a service such as you send it, but why? An FTP client is a necessity for anybody who performs any website development tasks, but it's a good tool to have around, even if you don't. How goes the tablet world? Tablets seem to be selling pretty well, just not Microsoft tablets. Microsoft seems to have released its tablet computers in exactly the wrong order. First came the underpowered Surface RT. It looks like it's running a standard version of Windows 8, but it can't run standard desktop applications. Now Microsoft has released the Surface Windows 8 Pro. This is the one that should have been released first. The RT version isn't usable in a business setting, and it really has little appeal for most people because of its severe limitations. Manufacturers other than Microsoft have already released tablet computers that run the full standard version of Windows. After a slightly rough start with my Acer Iconia, the new hardware issues have been resolved, and I spend several hours with the tablet just about every day. The time spent with the tablet usually includes reading a book with the Amazon Kindle application, reading the New York Times using Firefox, responding to email messages when the answer is short enough to be dealt with using the on-screen keyboard, reading Newsweek with the Barnes & Noble Nook Reader, which is now almost usable, and even watching a French movie with subtitles. The Surface Pro will have similar capabilities. The model shown on the TechBiter Worldwide website has the optional type cover, and the Pro became available for purchase on the 9th of February. The Surface Pro starts at $900, or if you listen to Microsoft, $899. That certainly is a lot less expensive. It is available in 64GB and 128GB versions, and it includes the Surface Pen. Because Microsoft's release of the Pro version was so late, it is behind the pack of other Windows tablets, and other Windows tablets are overall behind the pack of Apple's iPads. But Microsoft has played catch-up before. Microsoft still largely owns the desktop and notebook market, and Microsoft is betting on the desire by people who use those kinds of machines to have a tablet that runs the applications they're used to using. If so, that would be the Windows tablet, whether from Microsoft or Lenovo or Acer or Dell or any of the other manufacturers. I have not said, and I have no intention of saying, that a tablet computer will replace desktop or notebook computers. Tablets have big advantages in portability and making it easy to view data, along with words and pictures, while you're on the go. And they do have limitations when it comes to processes that require the use of a keyboard or large amounts of data storage. As much as I like the tablet, and I like it a lot, you'll still find two notebook computers at the office in addition to a desktop system, and at home you'll see a notebook and a desktop computer coexisting quite nicely with the Acer tablet and with the now somewhat less used Android tablet. 
Relatively speaking, these full-featured Windows tablets are fairly thick and heavy. Tablets that include a keyboard, making them essentially a transformable notebook, are thicker and heavier still. But the screen is huge, at least by the standards of handheld devices, and much of the weight comes from the Gorilla Glass that's used for the screen. The Microsoft Surface Pro even includes some hardware that other manufacturers don't provide. A digital pen, for example. Those who have seen this in operation say the pen works exceedingly well. You might be wondering just how powerful are these tablet computers, and you might be surprised. The Acer Iconia that I bought is a 64-bit system with 4 gigabytes of RAM. It compares pretty favorably with my notebook computer and nearly equals it in performance. Both the laptop and the tablet run on Intel i5 processors and both have a Windows rating of 6.9. The laptop has 50% more memory than the tablet, 6 gigabytes to 4, and that pushes its rating up to 7.4 over the tablet's 5.9. As far as graphics go, pretty much equal, 5.7 on the laptop with its Intel HD 3000, and 5.3 on the tablet with its Intel HD 4000. About the same amount of memory is available for gaming graphics. Not particularly important to me. Both computers get a 6.1 rating. As far as the disk drive goes, the Toshiba laptop has a 464GB drive with 362GB free. It gets a 5.7 rating. It's a standard spinning hard drive. The Acer tablet's hard drive is much smaller, 59GB with 22GB free, but it's a solid-state device. It gets a rating of 8.1. So, overall, the laptop rates 5.7, the tablet 5.3. Tablets aren't for everyone, and they're certainly not suitable for every task. But they are exactly the right tool for some people, for some jobs. In short circuits, if you consider the iPad to be a computer, Apple won the holiday shopping season hands down. If you think of tablets such as the iPad as computing devices but not full computers, well, then the story is mixed. If you include tablets, worldwide PC shipments were up 12% in the final quarter of 2012 compared with the same period last year, and Apple led with just under 23 million iPads sold, along with 4 million other computers. Apple is the only manufacturer of Apple products, you knew that, right? While PCs are made by several large companies, hundreds of medium-sized companies, and thousands of small companies. Some people even build their own from parts. So it's still a Windows-based market. Lenovo alone shipped nearly 15 million computers in the fourth quarter. The study was released by Canalys Channels Forum, a market analysis company. The results do seem to indicate that, increasingly, people are embracing tablets for some tasks. You've no doubt already heard about the big plan by Michael Dell, Microsoft, and the investment firm Silver Lake to take Dell's computer company private for $24.4 billion. But a stockholder has filed a suit to stop the deal. 
Filed on Wednesday, the lawsuit charges that Dell's leaders aren't trying to save the company, but to save the company's cash for themselves and to acquire ownership for far less than the company is worth. The price set for the buyout is $13.65 per share. In announcing plans for the LBL, Dell's board provided a 45-day period during which other prospective buyers may submit bids. I seem to have hit the jackpot one day this week when just about every fraudster in the known world decided to send a spam for my close attention. The level of quality varies remarkably. ADP is a large company that writes a lot of payroll checks for tens of thousands of businesses all around the world. ADP does not send out messages encouraging people to click links. So I pretty quickly ruled that one out. Then I received a message from the Federal Financial Institutions Examination Council. They told me that they had sent me a subpoena, and this was to give me notice of a certain action which has been opened under the request of the Federal Financial Institutions Examination Council. Well, nobody sends subpoenas by email. Trash bin. How about a message from someone I have never heard of before, and there's nothing in the message except, click on this link, please. Would any sane person click on that link? Would you? Would I? Trash. Then I received one that claimed to be from cvsphoto.com. Thought somebody was sharing an album with me. At first glance, I thought it was one of those Russian porn messages, but then I looked a little closer. Instead, it turned out to be more or less a classic Nigerian scam with a slightly new face. In this case, they were going to send me a trunk full of money. Here's an email from Merchant claiming to be offering me a loan. Anybody who bites for this will probably be asked for just enough information that the spammer can extract funds from the victim's bank account, so no thanks to that one. Oh, by the way, there are images of all these on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Be sure to check them out. Some of them are pretty laughable. And here's one that is laughable. It's from a spam fraudster who resides near the very bottom of the slime barrel. His message invites me to examine the attachment. What attachment? Surprise, there was no attachment. So the message is entirely harmless, but amazingly stupid. And for the past several weeks, I've been receiving messages from Twitter. Yes, they really are from Twitter. They're from actually from somebody that I know. They have a link that apparently resolves to a porn site. I presume the person whose account they came from simply abandoned the Twitter account. The messages have continued to come for about three weeks now. So there's one really easy solution to that one. Report the account for spam. The messages stopped immediately. And here's kind of a P.S. Two weeks ago, you might have wondered why the podcast didn't sound very good. Well, as it turns out, the bad sound was the result of an improvement in audio gear. An improvement that didn't work exactly as intended. For the past two years, I've recorded the podcast on a Tascam DR07 digital recorder and then copied the file to the hard drive. That's because the audio subsystem in my desktop computer isn't sufficient to work with Adobe Audition. So in January, I acquired a Focusrite Sapphire 6 USB audio interface that does work with Audition. Unfortunately, as I found out two weeks ago, it didn't work very well with my Cascade Fathead ribbon microphone. What I had forgotten is that ribbon mics have extremely low audio output. 
To obtain even marginally acceptable levels, I had to run the Focusrite audio interface with the gain wide open and then boost the signal by about 20 decibels once Audition had the WAV file. All that gain introduced an unacceptable amount of electronic noise. I was able to attenuate the noise, but doing so introduced what sounded to some listeners like an echo. So last week I switched back to the old standby AKG microphone. It sounds good, but the Cascade mic sounds better, and I wanted to use it for the podcast. That led me to talk to B&H Photo in New York, where I bought the microphone and the Focusrite audio interface, and then talked to Cascade Microphones in Olympia, Washington. They reminded me of what I'd forgotten. Ribbon microphones have an inherently low output. The recommendation was to add a Cloudlifter CL1 mic activator by Cloud Microphones. This is a device that fits between the microphone and the Focusrite audio interface. It uses the phantom power provided by the Focusrite device, and it introduces up to 25 decibels of clean gain. Ah, much better now. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the weekly podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. All music on TechBiter Worldwide is licensed under the Creative Commons, and information about performers is on the website, www.techbiter.com. I'm Bill Blinn, and if you'd like, you can also send me a message from the website. Thanks for listening. I look forward to talking with you again in a week.